Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. I'm your host, Aaron Zober. As we approach Valentine's Day, we think of what else but chocolate. And with chocolate, like all foods, it's most important to have our chocolate appropriately sourced and get the most sustainable chocolate you can find. So today, we're going to hear from Michael Keynes, co-owner and chocolate maker of Mocha Chocolate, which is made in Colorado from their chocolate farm collective in Peru. Michael, welcome to the program. Hi. Hi. Great to have you here and glad. I know with your business, this must be one of the busiest times around of Valentine's Day, so I'm glad that you can make the time to stop by. Pleasure. Okay, so let's get into what you do. How did you first get involved with fine chocolate making? So chocolate making came later for me in regards to the journey we've been on. The first thing was buying a chocolate farm. My brother-in-law called me one day and asked me if I wanted to buy a chocolate farm in Peru, and I said yes, sort of before telling my wife that I was saying <laughs> But seeing as it was sort of a family business, I sort of thought that we could convince her later on. But the thing about chocolate making came after visiting our farm where I realized how small the return for chocolate farmers was and how when trying to understand the actual life cycle, or should I say the commodity cycle of chocolate, I wanted to get it to its final state. And I wanted to see how many parts along the way, how many processes would lead to what sort of scale of return. So we were trying to build a business where we could then reverse engineer that to the most appropriate return to our farmers. So fine chocolate making involves watching and reading countless blogs and YouTube videos and people like Dandelion and their amazing instructional this is how you make a real mess and the whole idea of making chocolate is really a process of getting to the point where you're making so much that you can't lick every utensil so by the time you get to a scale production and where you're actually making commercial chocolate you watch so much of it sort of wash away which is very sad but the whole idea of fine chocolate making literally came from me wanting to scale the return to the point where i could actually offer as much as possible to my growers. When you mentioned Dandelion, were you talking about the Dandelion Chocolate Company? Yeah, Greg and his business partners, Dandelion, were sort of one of the first points where I got to read through their blogs and I got to see them implementing new process. And that's because the first thing that I thought when it's like, all I need is a quarter of a million dollars and you put this here and this there and this there and that there. And <laughs> it looks great and on paper until you start to realize that money is hard to come by <laughs> in some respects. So obviously the first thing you've got to do is you build your own winnower. Then you've got to build a vibration table. Then you've got to work out how to temper. So watching people like Dandelion and looking at their blogs, historical and current, was really a wonderful thing for, I'm sure, many chocolate makers that were up and coming. Dandelion is a wonderful company. I had the pleasure of meeting someone who works for them at a conference a couple of years ago, and I was familiar with theirs because as I live in LA, they're available to stores. And I think that that's a great company to be a model for your business. 
Yeah, the first conversations I had were with Greg D'Alessandro and it was from over a Facebook chat, I think, while I was sitting at our co-op in Peru in the Chanel Valley. And so having a conversation with him where he was openly telling me that they try and benchmark their commodity price at, at $6 a kilo, that was sort of where I started to sort of evolved my thinking so it was always very generous of people especially greg and other people like that that have really been important along the way mm-hmm. and so what else was involved in learning how to make chocolate <laughs> a little bit of engineering so a lot of process but learning how to taste and how to smell is very important and not necessarily being a person that has a vocabulary around that not like wine people do which is definitely why wine and chocolate are very amazing as a, as a pair but learning how to, to tell when chocolate is ready learning the way that it moves and looking at some chocolate moving temper and knowing that it's ready now those sorts of things you can tell people and you can show them but it really is a process of countless hours of getting it wrong. But the thing about chocolate, which is the best part, is especially as a finished product, when you get it wrong, you literally just melt it and start again. So chocolate is one of those things that is so amazing. You can rip it apart and have powder <laughs> and butter and then put it back together and it's chocolate again. It's literally it's just components that then meld back in together so but at the same time it's very much alchemical process of conversion by the time you get chocolate in its finished state or its curvature state it's very personal expression i suppose so that sort of thing is very important but also i've been an import exporter for 10 years and working in it and it products and i.m networking but <laughs> moving commodities like cacao around the world through ports is again a <laughs> Real learning experience. So you then had a background in food before doing the chocolate making? Well, I'm a horticulturalist and a native ecologist, and I spent about five years in the kitchen, working, cooking food. But my main sort of background is in network architecture and IT equipment. So that fell in the middle, I suppose. <laughs> and finding the reality of my very, very boring life of moving sensitive equipment from here to there or installing electronic components that's what really pushed me to get back to so for me being back in the jungle working with plants and working with the environment for me was a real push but to be able to push that all the way through to the food and especially chocolate is very alluring it's interesting because i've actually met a number of people who are now in some type of food business specifically in the natural foods as that's what i cover that had started out in the world of it yeah, I don't know. To be honest, I fell into IT because, should I say, the pathway for probably earning in my 20s was very limited in that field. So because of that, I was wanted to start a family. I wanted to look at actually earning some money. So the IT definitely seemed one of those fields. Now, for my mind, being able to what I did in IT isn't necessarily what you would expect a network architect to do. We would <laughs> build and rebuild systems. So for me, it was all about systems. So when it comes to the area of what I'm doing now, being able to look at the whole thing as a system, and I mean the linear supply chain, I mean the production systems of chocolate, manufacture and distribution, you know, it's very 
in last year as a bigger picture. So when I look at a whole network structure, something like a campus land network or a wider wind system, you're looking at the same sort of thing, but you're moving packets. <laughs> so for me, it's very patico, but at the same time, it's a lot more hands-on. I can't do this job remotely. You are talking earlier about how this originally started with buying a farm. So is all of your chocolate sourced from your own farm? So it's been a five-year project so far. The first step was to, after we bought our farm, to set up um, the processes to work towards the five-farm production model, which is what we are now in the second phase of. But the first thing we did is we bought a farm in a small community called now eastern part of Peru. Our little town is on a river called the Rio Mayo, which is one of the highest tributaries in the Peruvian Amazon that comes out of the mountains and flows then through into the Amazon proper after it moves through Hawanga and the Maranon and then up to a Kintos mountain in the Amazon. So our area is the, the highest part of the cacao growing area in northern Peru. About 20 minutes up the road, it's coffee. Where we are is beautiful, gorgeous spot. And we went there first and, and we looked around. Our farm is fairly small. In order to grow cacao, you really have to cut all the trees down, which when we talk about sustainability, we can get into the realities of sustainability when it comes to chocolate. So we have about two acres of cacao on our farm, which is very small amount. When you think of cacao, one tree will produce about a kilo to a kilo and a half, one to two times a year, depending on the variety. So the amount of trees and land you need to produce four, five, maybe eight to ten tons of cacao is obviously very large. So our first thought was to set up a community-led co-op. So being the ambitious gringos that we are, the first thing we did when we got to town was organise a community meeting. And we sat down with, I think, about somewhere between 45 to 50 farmers on the first occasion. And we told them that we would come back the following year and we would purchase five tons of cacao if they could form together a cooperative group and start. Cacao is wonderful when it's on the tree and it can turn into all sorts of things by the time it gets into a bag. So what you need to do first when you're talking about fine cacao is you need to set up process and you need consistency. The most important thing during fermentation is consistency. And what chocolate makers want when they buy cacao is they want consistent products. Sure, they want the best product they can find, but as long as it's consistent, they can work with it through a production system. So for us, we needed process fermentation. So we put it to the farmers. We raised, I think at the time we got grant of, I think it was $5,000 from, there's a company called Lush that have a thing called the Slush Fund, and they gave us $5,000, which we put to fermentation chambers, and also a number of other things that we sort of appropriated those funds for, for the farmers, to set up their system. So the following year, we came back, and that year I spent two months in Janao, living in the village and working every day, honing those systems, trying to implement process, trying to learn because most importantly for me, it was about learning. I have no idea how to do cacao. But learning from them, but also teaching them what I wanted to see. And that was very interesting. It was a real sort of eye-opener. But the amount of cacao that comes from our property is fairly small. We have a farmer that is our neighbour. He sort of looks after our farm and in return, he actually gets 
in essence, sell us our own cacao. (laughs) (laughs) So for us, our farm was more important. Our farm has some of the largest trees in the whole side of the hill because our farm has been sort of let go wild a little bit. So for us, it's a beautiful place to to go and try to relate. The whole area is full of cacao and getting back to the sustainability part, it's definitely cacao has its advantages with an economy, but it definitely takes its toll on the native policy. What other ways would you say that Moksha chocolate is environmentally and sustainably conscious? The cacao requires a particular environment for it to grow. Cacao requires shade trees while it's growing to its natural form. And then beyond that, it requires open canopy to produce to its fullest potential. So generally what happens is farmers will clear an area. They will then plant bananas and, or corn generally first. And then they plant bananas. And the bananas shade the cacao while it's growing. And then generally they take out most of the shade trees. And then you've got an area of cacao now. The reason why this happens, and it's not quite flash and burn, but it's definitely on the edge of that, is because of the return. The return that a farmer gets for cacao, or should I say commodity, the the oldest commodities in the world are cacao, coffee and sugar. They're literally the three that are run by the CCSE. The cacao, coffee and sugar exchange, which is a nondescript looking building in Wall Street (laughs) that controls all of the commodity prices for those big colonial commodities. So at $2 a kilo, generally, anywhere between $2 and $3, that means that that $2 price is actually the export price. So when you talk about fair trade, when you talk about all sorts of other things, you generally don't get that far above 2 to $3 a kilo. And generally what you're talking about is at port. So for us, the most important part was farmers are always looking to increase their return. So for us, the most important part was trying to create an economy where the farmers could get enough for their commodity, but they could also find some form of employment that would allow them to, in the off-season, sort of augment their salaries or their seasonal returns. So for us, in many respects, the process was trying to set up a way so that the farmers weren't constantly needing to expand their cacao in order to get the amount of money they needed to live. So setting up the co-op was important, being able to fund the co-op. Now, we're only at, of course, five-tonne production model where we're looking to move towards 10. And the more we can move, you know, our valley produces between 60 to 80 tonnes of cacao, which is a large system. We spoke about Dandelion before. I think they are working towards 200 tonnes. Now, that's huge, but that's still three times what our valley produces. And I think they've got about eight to ten different producers that they work with. So it's obviously being able to soak up that much chocolate. It's very important to have ways to be able to move it. And so for us, being able to return as much as possible at port to our farmers allowed us to be able to create ways that farmers could work on other projects. Like, for example, we do have a lot of areas that have fallen into environmental prices in our region so being able to pay our farmers to grow things other than cacao for planting in areas 
that they are looking to regenerate was very important. Telling a farmer they can't plant cacao because we prefer them to keep an area covered in trees, it's a wonderful thing, but we really don't have any place to do that. But working with the farmers when they do notice areas that have fallen into disrepair and being able to fund those, you know, a couple of hundred dollars will plant many thousand trees. It's a very small amount of money that you can do a lot of good. So for us, it was bringing the farmers together and seeding their ideas with small funding contributions that would allow them. So for us, it's really a work in progress. Saying we're environmentally conscious or sustainable, it, it's wonderful. I do. <laughs> Thanks, Barry Calibert. Tell me all about it. But uh, I just don't understand how you can go from 50, 42% to 53% sustainable. What are we even talking about? What's our index? So again, it's one of those things that bringing people together, I know, bit of anarcho-syndicalist so the idea of bringing people together to build their own structures and their value system for me is more important empowering people is where I actually find better ways or better tools I suppose than the common environmental systems of conservation I don't necessarily think that taking people's power away for their own good or for the good of areas around them is the best way. I think empowering them and actually facilitating their ideas and building their economy is a much better source. And you were saying earlier about how your business is a co-op, and I imagine that that's a big part of empowering the workers. Can you explain to the listeners a little bit more of how the co-op system works? Our group currently is an association. It's an association of members. Working towards a co-op is, again, another step for us, which would facilitate the farmers actually having access to port. The most important part, and again, laws are different. We started working with a group in Belize, and if they form a co-op, that gives them some problems when it comes to the government, because governments have control over how cooperatives operate. In Peru, we're fortunate cooperatives don't actually have some of those problems, but when it comes to cooperative, it's basic farmer-owned system is the group of farmers that under cooperative law in Peru, for example, have access to commodity ownership because the most important part in any system is actually being able to own the commodity. Now, when you own the commodity, that means that you can actually make it available for sale as an export commodity. You actually, so for us, the most important part was allowing the system that we set up have access to to 